there are going to be a lot more electric cars in the future, but just not enough to meet dreamy political goals. In this episode of The Last Optimist, we're talking about electric vehicles, EVs, about their prospects, about the realities and the myths. I mean, let's face it, some of what's being said with such enthusiasm and certainty about EVs, you'd have to call it a kind of Tesla derangement syndrome. No, I'm not denying that EVs have arrived and they're a big deal or that Tesla is anything but an awesome and remarkably successful company. After all, last year was a record year for EV sales. They doubled year over year. And this is amazing. All EVs bought in America were drum roll Teslas. And that's despite the fact that there are now dozens of models from other car makers to choose from. In fact, globally, if you exclude China, and China's a special case always, Tesla alone took over one-third of all EV sales. That means that in Europe, this 10-year-old upstart Tesla is able to compete head-to-head with Volkswagen, the nearly one-century-old automotive giant. By any standard, that's amazing. As for China, well, Elon Musk's there, too, with his new Shanghai factory, uh, as anyone knows who follows EVs. So... We're going to talk about EVs a lot here today, electric cars, the future, and uh, you'll excuse the frog in my voice. I'm fighting residual laryngitis, but I think we can get through this. It's important to talk about uh, because of the enthusiasms and the sillinesses and the seriousness of uh, cars and transportation and all things electric. The Tesla is nothing if not impressive. You can't explain the success on the back of subsidies. People who can afford a car costing nearly $100,000 don't buy it just for virtue signaling <laughs> or because it's they like Elon Musk. They, you know, the purchases at huge volumes don't happen because of a $10,000 or $15,000 subsidy on a car that expensive. It still has to be a good car. It has to be an impressive car. It has to be fun. People buy cars that work, that meet the, you know, this whole range of, inelocutable features that animate decisions in the real world of car sales. You know, safety is important, but convenience and utility and style, comfort, and virtue signaling, of course, and, you know, fun. Few cars in in the world, though, have an option in the the car uh, that's called ludicrous mode that delivers just ludicrous acceleration. That's the Tesla's every, you know, Tesla aficionado knows. And for some people, there are a few things that's thrilling, and I'll confess I used to be one of them, still am. Uh, a few things that's thrilling is the kind of acceleration that can peel your lips back from your teeth. But look, I digress on things that really matter here. It's really only been recently that other automakers have caught up with Tesla, uh, not on the ludicrous fun, but just in developing a practical EV option to sell to that niche of auto buyers, and it's still a niche, that want that option. They want to use an electric vehicle. They like the idea of driving one. They like its features. They like all the things that it suggests. It's taken a long time, though, to catch up with the engineering genius genius of um, Elon Musk's team in designing what is still one of the best, if not the best, designs and construction of a battery for a car in the world. Well, let's start with Elon Musk before I get to the technology and the batteries. I mean, I, it's kind of interesting. You know, well, future historians see him as sort of the 21st century Henry Ford for cars, 
or maybe for rocket ships, not for cars. Let me, let's consider an analogy. Vanderbilt was one of the greatest and storied so-called robber barons of the 19th century. We call them tech titans today. Some people call them robber barons, but they're tech. And, and you know, Vanderbilt became fabulously wealthy building a railroad empire, but he didn't start uh, that with that. And he didn't invent the steam engine. He didn't invent the railroad engine. He built an empire based on them. And relevant to how history doesn't repeat, but it does rhyme. Vanderbilt began his career, career, his famous successful career, building a steamship business, ship business. It wasn't until several, several decades after that in the 1860s that he switched horses, so to, so to speak, to railroads, a transportation technology that really did open up new frontiers, both physical and economic, in ways that the steamship didn't. In the latter case, the steamship was a huge improvement over sailing, but it was still a ship. Meanwhile, uh, the mass of sort of phenomenological, economic, and social, sort of society-moving difference between a horse and a wagon and a railroad car, that was big. And hence, that, that was a, a revolution that followed. A much bigger revolution, frankly, than going from sail to steam. The relevance here is that using a battery instead of an engine to propel a car is really not even as consequential as going from steam, from, from sail to steamships. In fact, it's, it's more like, and I'll use an analogy in the pre-automobile era, it'd be more like an entrepreneur coming up with a different way to feed horses for the horse and wagon. Still a horse, uh, but going from a horse to a car, that was a revolution of profound nature. Similar, similarly changing, of course, what we feed a car, lithium chemistry, instead of oil chemistry, that has consequences. Some of them are even big, but it's not as any more of a revolution than changing the food for horses at the dawn of the 20th century. And at that time, horses and wagons still dominated the world's roads. But, and this is a subject we'll come back to in, in a future episode, making space travel practical, where Elon Musk is having a huge impact, making reusable rocket ships. Well, that's more like switching from horses um, to steamships, oh, sorry, it's more like it's more like switching from horses to cars than switching from steam from sail to steamships. So the analogy sort of, um, I mean, you get my point in these analogies. So you, you, consequential things happen, but revolutions are really different than consequential things that change who's rich and who fuels something. Anyway, back to the vaunted electric vehicle of today. There's no question that the electric drive system is becoming practical and an interesting option is important. And it's wealth creating for some people and some industries. But is it revolutionary in terms of changing the world in deep societal terms? Yeah, not so much. And I cover a lot of this in some chapters in my book, The Cloud Revolution. But I'm gonna just highlight it here today. As, as most people know, nearly, all the early automobile companies that were successful in the first decade of the 20th century used batteries as their primary source of power. And that's because it was so difficult to design and manufacture a practical internal combustion engine. But engineers did figure that out. Entrepreneurs built them, Henry Ford among them. And it really was more of his revolution was in the engine, not in the production line. He didn't invent the mass production line. It was invented earlier. He invented a better engine a better engine, a better propulsion system than the battery. Uh, 
you know, the batteries that existed then were the uh, lead acid batteries. And they were pretty, it was a pretty recent technology, by the way, but they were still a pretty lousy way of storing quantities of energy needed to propel heavy vehicles for any length of time. So the internal combustion engine age took over from the battery in the early 20th century and relegated the battery to a secondary but important role to start the car. And that was true for quite a long time until, well, let's say 2019, we knew that it wasn't true anymore because the Nobel Committee gave the Nobel Prize in Chemistry to three engineers for their role in inventing lithium-ion battery chemistry. And that revolution was actually pretty recent in history. It was in the late 1970s when an Exxon lab, it's kind of ironic, isn't it? But an Exxon, the Exxon Laboratories in New Jersey, a researcher there uh, invented the first practical idea of using lithium chemistry to make a battery. He was one of the recipients of the Nobel Prize. It took another decade or so and a couple of other engineers who also joined getting that Nobel Prize and a Sony Corporation to bring the lithium chemistry to practical use, even if still pretty expensive for low power consumer products. So it was the lithium battery, in fact, that was a key development as it matured in making possible the smartphone. I mean, it's beyond obvious that a smartphone with a battery that weighs several pounds wouldn't be called a handheld phone and fit in pockets or purses. And the enthusiastic adoption of smartphone technology is really anchored hugely in the development of lithium chemistry, which is what motivated in many ways the Nobel Committee to give out the prize. And it was also the production of billions of lithium batteries to go into consumer devices and smartphones that led to the relentless improvements in performance and driving the costs of lithium chemistry battery manufacturing down. So, you know, the truth is innovators have been trying to store electricity in bottles for a long time. You know, catching lightning in a bottle was a phrase that was attributed to Benjamin Franklin. It's a really old idea. In fact, the Baghdad Museum as a battery that archaeologists date back to 250 BC in Mesopotamia. So, you know, it was a long time before we got useful ways to store electricity. It was the 1800s, in fact, when the lead acid battery was invented. And to be clear, it was the lithium chemistry that was a revolution for batteries. There's no question about that. It enabled us portability I talked about. That's a huge deal. I mean, the mobile phone, and so just to be clear, you know, the, the revolution here wasn't in the cars, it was in everything else. The lithium chemistry made mobile internet possible. It democratized banking and shopping. It unleashed the phenomenon of social media for better or for worse. It upended politics and how we share news and collect information because of the cell phone camera and democratizing, if you like, the image capture, movie captures of events that cause causes social disruptions to say the least. It also made possible the new sort of navigation-based features. It's on track even to revolutionize a lot of what we do in healthcare. Lithium battery chemistry was sea change. It was revolutionary, unequivocally. But when it comes to cars, it's really driven an option, not a revolution. As I said, it's changed the way we feed cars. It's still a horse, still a car. <clears throat> so let me turn to the EV in the car because that's the epicenter of my conversation this episode. The EV in the car offers consumers a new option, a new consumer choice. It changes the fuel, right? It changes the fuel in ways that we used to only have 
out, the only other option for the fuel was, uh, you know, food-based uh, materials, corn and, you know, palm oil converted into alcohols, if you like, and artificial, you know, uh, synthetic diesel fuels. So now, now we have this half ton, keep in mind, it's what the battery race in a car, a half ton electrochemical battery pack that can uh, propel a car. Before we get into what this means for the propulsion system, again, another brief digression onto a myth that electric cars are just simpler and therefore they're inevitably, inevitably going to become far cheaper than internal combustion engines. Well, um, they, they are different, but they're not simpler. We've just shifted where the complexities lie. The conventional car has pretty complex multi-thousand part engine combined with a very, very simple single part fuel tank. An electric car flops the complexities. It has a very simple propulsion system. Its motor has a single moving part, but its fuel storage system is a very complex machine. It has thousands of parts as well. Um, hundreds to thousands of cells connected with thousands of welds, electronic control systems to manage the multiple cells in the batteries. It's an, it has cooling systems and structural safety systems. It sounds a lot like an engine. It's similarly complex, similarly difficult to make an engineer. So we essentially switched complexities. We went from an a, a electrothermal internal combustion engine that's very complex to an electrochemical fuel storage system switching complexities. And it shows up in terms of the manufacturing. In fact, even the idea that it's cheaper or easier to manufacture, it's also not really true. I mean, if you compare the labor involved in manufacturing the battery in the sort of labor hours to produce a propulsion battery versus the labor hours to produce the transmission and engine systems in a conventional car, they're very similar. In fact, at the moment, it takes more labor hours to produce the electric car all in than it does to produce the internal combustion engine. It just shifts where the labor hours are. And in fact, it offshores a lot of labor hours because many of the manufacturing processes needed to make the key components for the battery and the key chemicals and materials for the battery are all offshore. So assembling battery packs here and saying that we're onshoring electric vehicle manufacturing is the equivalent of assembling cars here but having all the gasoline produced overseas and the, and the processes and plants that manufacture gasoline. Again, it's, it's, it's a switch of location. Uh, it's not such a good switch of location for uh, employment in America. And in fact, in many respects, the General Motors strike that they experienced in the UAW a little over a year ago about jobs in the factories in America was about just exactly that shift in labor. Uh, it's not that you don't need labor. It's just that you change where the labor is. And in fact, as I said, you're not decreasing the total labor in, into the vehicle. You're just shifting where the labor focus is. And for now, it actually, electric cars increases labor. This is not a job. It should, this is not how you create jobs, by the way. You don't want to have more labor going into making vehicles. That doesn't make them cheaper. That makes them more expensive. But so let's come back to the, the magic of the lithium chemistry, because all things equal, it is it's going to be the case that the overall labor and manufacturing for electric cars won't be that much different than for internal combustion engines, except for the challenges in getting what's required for the chemical systems, the batteries and the materials for the lithium chemistry. 
Uh, that's that's where the epicenter of challenge is. And and the lithium, look again, the lithium chemistry is, is is a big deal. It's it's changed the game. It's increased the range uh, of electric car by a lot. Um, if you had a lead, lead acid batteries in a in an eight cubic foot space, that's a two foot by two foot by two foot cube, you get a range of fifty miles. That's worthless, right? If you put lithium chemistry in there, you get a range of over 150 miles in the latest, best lithium chemistry. And if you make the cube bigger or rectangle, as the batteries are actually built in rectangles, you can get several hundred miles or 500 miles of range. For perspective, I want to point out that in the same volume, if you put gasoline, you get a 1,500 mile range. I mean, gasoline has far higher energy density. But that's not the point. You, you get enough range, you know, you get enough range to make it practical, which is why you sort of have this Shazam moment in 2012 when Elon Musk introduced the first Tesla electric sedan. You know, the overnight success of 30 years of engineering development from other people <laughs> to get to a point when a, you could make a quote practical, at least for the wealthy, the relatively wealthy uh, electric vehicle. In a way, Elon Musk is a bit like, in this case, to go back to my earlier analogy, is a bit like Vanderbilt, you know, when he built a successful steamship company uh, using the technologies and inventions pioneered by others earlier, but doing it in a very clever and much more practical way. And it was consequential. It was important, but it wasn't as, as it wasn't a revolution as big as others are possible. It was a revolution in terms of the wealth for Vanderbilt just as it's a revolution in the wealth from Elon Musk. In fact, I think Elon Musk today is, is at a point where his wealth in real inflation-adjusted terms is sort of roughly comparable to, or maybe slightly even slightly ahead of Vanderbilt's. It's quite amazing. So with practical electric cars, dozens of models proliferating, practical again, in the sense that they're expensive, but useful, have range, have utility, and uh, even if they're still expensive. And because people think, that they're going to get cheaper fast now. And because of the obvious feature that they have that they don't burn stuff, we have uh, enthusiasms in at least two dozen countries that have said they're going to, or have already banned the sale of internal combustion engines by the 2030 or 2040. In fact, there's at least a dozen states that are saying they're going to do that or have already done. Some of them have already done it like California. Hey, you know why this is happening. It's, you know, obvious to every school child and apparently a lot of policymakers too, that electric cars don't burn fuel. So they don't emit the vilified molecule carbon dioxide. Okay. That's true. I mean, at least the car doesn't, there's emissions elsewhere, which I'll get to. Um, so really the question you'd have to ask yourself at this point is not whether it's easier or cheaper to make electric cars. It's still a little harder and a little more expensive. Uh, and batteries are good enough to give you a, a car that's useful. It's still more expensive than a conventional comparable car, but will it get a lot cheaper fast? And will it make it possible to, if not ban, just because of market forces outright replace all internal combustion engines? Well, okay. Um, you don't think you need the bans. I mean, a lot of the enthusiasms, if they're really cheaper, will cause people to buy electric vehicles instead of internal combustion engines. And as I said at the outset, uh, the sales have really accelerated from you know small base, granted, on global scale, but they've accelerated. They doubled year on year. I mean, as a, as a share of all vehicles in the world, they're still pretty small. We're still at less than 
0.7% of all light duty vehicles on America's roads are EVs. Let me repeat that. Less than 1% of all light duty vehicles on America's roads are electric vehicles today, despite you know, accelerating growth. There's a lot of vehicles on the road. There's, there's actually more vehicles on America's roads than there are licensed drivers. It takes a long time to, to displace uh, an infrastructure that big. So the conventional wisdom is that EV sales are going to accelerate because they're going to get cheaper soon. Uh, and the principal impediment to EVs has been what's been called range anxiety. Well, I think that's wrong. First, both things are wrong. They're not going to get a lot cheaper soon. And range anxiety is not the problem. The range issue has been conquered. A few hundred miles is plenty of range. 300 miles is what you get with most, most EVs. Uh, and what's being said, of course, is we solve the range, range anxiety problem by just having more charging stations. In fact, that's the whole goal of the government right now is to, in fact, Congress already passed this. Um, more more uh, subsidies for more EV stations and, and more EV charging stations will solve the problem. Well, look, it, it well, and it's easy to figure out why it doesn't quote solve the problem. And, and, and to be clear, more range is coming. Uh, Mercedes-Benz announced that they've uh, demonstrated a thousand mile range for a one of their uh, prototype EVs. The new Ford F-150 Lightning pickup truck, um, when they've already has a lineup of people want to buy it, it's going to be pretty cool. It has a 400 mile range battery. That's not the point. The rub is how long it takes to fuel the battery, the refuel time. And this is this is the key problem, and it's a key problem not just um, behaviorally, which is how consumers respond to a product. It's also a problem uh, economically. EVs can't be refueled at the same rate as which we refuel a conventional vehicle, not even close. And the consequences, and the sort of operationally, behaviorally, and the consequences economically are easy to demonstrate, easy to explain. Let's do the math, as they say. A standard, at a standard gas lane station, if you pulled up with a standard Ford F-150, you could fill up the 26-gallon tank in about five minutes. In fact, you could fill it faster technically. The pumps are limited um, for safety reasons. You don't want to have that much fuel gushing out too quickly, but that's what they, roughly five or six minutes, you can fill up the tank. Uh, you compare that to how long it takes to uh, charge up uh, an F-150 Lightning or any EV with a standard level two charger. That's what's the, the, the nomenclature for the typical charger that uh, people have in their homes. Uh, it takes about 10 hours, 10 hours, not 10 minutes, not five minutes, 10 hours. Okay, You could use a so-called supercharger, which uses really high voltages, and you can drop that time down to 40 minutes of course, people are proposing to put at gasoline stations. Well, 40 minutes is still almost 10 longer than filling up a conventional gasoline tank. So first, set aside the inconvenience for most drivers most of the time of having to put up with a 40-minute fill-up rather than a five-minute fill-up using superstar. Let's talk about what this means economically and operationally. Continue with, let's continue with the math here. If you want to have uh, EV filling stations provide the same functional utility to consumers that they have today for the conventional vehicles, you're going, to need, you're going to need a lot of electric pumps, a lot of superchargers, a lot more than than gasoline pumps because the tenfold longer time to fill up means that for any filling station that wants to handle the same volume of traffic at peak time, they're going to need 10 times more pumps. 
So to have the consumers have the same experience, to be willing to put up with this, to have you know uh, the same kind of economic utility because time is precious. People value their time. So then you have to spend you have to, you have to spend the money to buy in the capital cost terms that many superchargers. Well, it's important to know that a supercharger, its capital cost is roughly double the capital cost of what a gasoline pumps at a cost at a gasoline station to build the gasoline station. So in rough terms, if you're doing the math here, double the cost per pump at tenfold more pumps per station is a 20-fold higher capital cost for the infrastructure to give consumers the same experience when they get on the road with in a, in a future where we ban internal combustion engines to have the same utility and operational experience, the same, frankly, economic experience because time is precious, time is money. That cost differential is anchored in the basic electrical equipment realities of making superchargers. There aren't any profound or rapid cost reductions in that technology, supercharger electrical engineering costs on the horizon. And none of this so far takes into account the incremental cost for the local electrical distribution infrastructure to support superchargers. In order to achieve a faster charge rate, superchargers operate at about a tenfold higher power level those power levels have consequences on the electrical grid infrastructures. And to support that, you're going to have to upgrade the local infrastructure. So you not only have more expensive fueling stations, you have to have a more expensive local grid. All these kinds of upgrade costs at the, the infrastructure typically ignored in the enthusiastic forecasts and mandates for a, an all-electric road future. So let's change gears, so to speak, and turn to another feature of the imagined all electric future in the real near term. And this is to consider the upstream demand for the gigatons of materials that will be needed to be mined and processed in order to fabricate the batteries. It's a whole other infrastructure reality that's only now being considered and has been really largely ignored. And frankly, it's the real elephant in the room. We could choose to spend all the money and mandate all the spending of the money for the charging infrastructures and the grid infrastructures, but it's going to be far harder to mandate the mining and mineral processing infrastructures to produce the materials to, um, to build what's called an all-electric future. And by that, not just all-electric transportation future, but also all the batteries that will be needed to make grid storage, you know, to get useful power from the episodic sources of sun and wind in the all-non-combustion all, um, grid future. They both have to happen simultaneously in that sort of imagined scenario. And this is the bottom line that you have to have in your head. And something I've written about a lot in recent years is that using batteries instead of internal combustion engine entails on average about a thousand percent increase in the total tonnage of materials you need to extract from the earth and process and convert to deliver the same mile driven by a gasoline and internal combustion vehicle. This is not my, my facts. I mean, these are in the technical literature. You can use the magic Dr. Google to find these facts. Uh, the International Energy Agency actually did as much a year ago. I've talked about this before. In a study that they did, was a very nice study, 300 pages. They issued it a year ago without much fanfare. No publicity at all. In fact, zero. Bupkis. And talk about it. They're still not talking about it really very much. And what they, what they concluded was that the transition to electric vehicles and wind and solar is, and let me, let me quote their statement, a shift from a fuel-intensive to a material-intensive energy system, sort of end quote. This is an unavoidable 
reality anchored in the physics of energy systems. It has, it has economic consequences, environmental consequences, geopolitical consequences. You know, the upstream reality is that the energy mineral supply chain will be stressed. It's not being stressed a lot until very recently. If you, if you shift from a, a transportation system that uses, again, let me restate it, oil and internal combustion engine to a transportation station system that uses batteries and battery chemicals and electric motors, you've increased the upstream minerals requirements by a thousand percent to deliver the same vehicle mile over the average life of the vehicle. doesn't matter very much if only 1% of your transportation system is uh, being built out with batteries. But if you start to move to close to 10% of new vehicle purchases based on batteries, it begins to have consequence. And that's about where we are. You know, last year, about 9% of net new purchases in the United States, it's pretty significant, went to EVs. Again, you know, 70% of those were Elon Musk's cars. Amazing. Um, just amazing. He's, he owns the market in the United States. And he owns a lot of the market globally. But the increase in demand for materials to produce all those EVs is already having consequence. And it'll have even more consequence at the scales that governments imagine mandating the purchase of electric vehicles. In fact, to, to, to uh, repeat a fact that I've written about, I think I've spoken about before in previous episodes, it's important in the context of this conversation to keep in mind that the path to using lots of solar wind and battery technologies to propel vehicles and provide power into the world, into, into society, will increase the demand and use of critical minerals, of variety minerals, you know, by 400% to over 1,000%, 4,000%, depending on the minerals. Um, in fact, specifically, you know, things like lithium, graphite, nickel, and cobalt, these, these materials the demand for them is going to increase by, in order of those specific ones I mentioned, by 4,000%, and 2,000%, and 1,900%, and 700% respectively. So, you know, 2,000% increase in nickel demand by 2040. These are, these are consequential uses, impacts, growth needed to produce transportation systems and power systems to refuel them. To be specific, give you a sense of perspective, an electric vehicle uh, uses about three to 400% more copper than a conventional car requires that much more. Or put in pounds terms, it's about 150 pounds more copper per car. You make millions and tens of millions of cars uh, that are electric instead of standard, and you get the millions of tons of, of copper, tens of millions of tons of copper, and you're beginning to impact global copper use for all other purposes. In fact, it pushes the electric vehicle and clean energy mandates move the energy sector from being a minor consumer of critical minerals like aluminum, nickel, cobalt, manganese. It moves that sector from being a minor user of those minerals to being the primary user of those minerals, which is profoundly inflationary for everything else that's made from those minerals, from appliances to computers to homes. I mean, that's people who anybody doing a renovation today talking about the cost of copper off, gone off the charts to do plumbing, a significant, if not primary push that's made the copper more expensive has been the giant, to use a technical term, sucking sound of demand for copper in the electric vehicle, wind and solar markets. Extraordinary increases in demand. 
And the problem here is that demand is growing faster than supply. It takes a long time to expand mining capacity. In fact, overall, the world's mining capacities for these critical materials, aluminum, copper, and nickel in particular, haven't changed very much in the last decade, but demand is starting to really take off. And as the IEA pointed out in its study, many others have, the global average to open a new mine, this is what it's been, 16 years. And the average timeline in the United States is even longer. In fact, you could say it's infinite in many cases because the United States has been so hostile to opening new mines and mineral processing facilities. So we're we're on track for a, a very challenging uh, collision between aspirations pushing demands for minerals to build EV batteries and solar arrays and wind turbines and the ability of the world to supply those minerals. And that collision is commodity inflation inducing and it's already happening. In fact, uh, commodity inflation in these critical minerals is already happening and price of lithium is up a thousand percent, the price of copper, and nickel are up over 200% in the last couple of years. And the only thing that's really changed in the last couple of years is a, in terms of the marginal increase in demand for these minerals is coming from so-called green energy machines, significantly batteries, and of course, building wind turbines and solar arrays. This is, this is having impact across the economy. It's also having impact on the cost of building green energy machines. I mean, the, the narrative has been, that we should expect batteries, therefore EVs, and wind turbines and solar arrays to get cheaper and cheaper every year. And in fact, all the forecasts for the so-called energy transition are based on the assumption that batteries and EVs and wind turbines and solar arrays will get cheaper every year and a lot cheaper yet. But the inflation in mineral commodities, because demand is growing faster than supply, has not only slowed, it's stopped and reversed the vaunted collapse in cost of batteries in wind turbines and solar arrays. This, is, this has not been widely publicized. It's been in some of the press, Wall Street Journal's reported it, but it's mostly showing up in specialty publications from Platts and from Reuters and you know, Bloomberg New Energy Finance News. So you can find it using, again, the magic Dr. Google machine. But here's what mineral commodity inflation is done. It's meant that the cost of solar modules has been rising for the last several years. It's up 50% in the last two years. It means that the profit margins for building wind turbines has been wiped out. Many wind turbine manufacturers are losing money and the cost of wind turbines has started creeping back up in the last two years and forecast to rise about 10 or 20% over the next year or two. And the cost of lithium batteries, the vaunted collapsing costs over the last decade, which are consequential, but it's dramatically slowed down. 2021 lithium battery costs were down only 6% over the prior year. And this year are expected to rise by a few percent. Rise, not go down, not collapse down, but go up all because of commodity mineral inflation. And that's because about 60 to 70% of the cost to make a battery now is in its mineral commodities. The cost to make solar modules, about 70% of the cost of making a solar modules in the mineral commodities. And in fact, the cost to make giant wind turbines, it's a lot of steel in it, but if you skip the steel part, which you can't skip because steel prices are up, but about 20% of the cost of making wind turbines is in the commodity materials. If Let's just take the 20% case. If you double the cost of the commodity materials for 20% of your bill of materials, you clearly increase the overall cost of the product by about 10%. That's the arithmetic. If, you're, if your minerals supply is half or more of the cost of building your machine, is 
the cost of the machinery itself, the cost of labor, the cost of the IP, they're all down in the, the minor share. If the minerals alone, the bill of materials is 60% to 70% of the cost, and those go up 50 to 200%, obviously your final product costs go up. The question you want to know is how long does that go on? Well, how long it goes on will depend on how fast the demand grows compared to how fast the supply grows. And right now, the demand is growing far faster than the supply, and there are no prospects for the supply growing fast enough to catch up because no one is surging mining production, nor is it really possible. And when it comes to the United States, the United States is the net importer of most of the critical minerals. In fact, we're totally dependent, 100% dependent on imports for 17 critical minerals. And for about two dozen others, we get more than half of all our domestic demand for all purposes from imports. Increasing demand for those critical minerals of all kinds to build green machines is no different than increasing demand for any other purpose, but we're not increasing supply here. We're not, nor is the world commensurately increasing supply. Certainly, uh, it's obvious to state it. This is not a political statement. It's a fact. Shifting the United States from sort of hydrocarbon energy for our transportation system to minerals-dependent batteries simply shifts our dependency on transportation from domestic production to foreign supplies of critical energy minerals. And China, for the record, is the utterly dominant producer of the refined process critical minerals. They're not the dominant miners. Um, they dominate rare earth mining. Uh, other countries, not America, dominate the mining of nickel and lithium and iron ore to make steel and aluminum. Not America. We don't dominate those sectors. But the Chinese firms utterly dominate the refining of the metals and materials and minerals into useful purposes. They have greater material supply dominance for critical energy minerals than does the Middle East and OPEC have dominance for oil. In fact, China's dominance in terms of share of world market for critical energy minerals is twice the share of mar market share uh, that OPEC has for oil and world markets. Now, this brings you back to my final point on EV mythologies, is that the um, EVs will dramatically reduce oil use and, in fact, allow us to eliminate the need to use oil at all. Um, there's certainly some people saying that. A lot of people, in fact, are saying that. This is sort of a easy to illustrate why it's a arithmetically silly thing to say. If, if we go from a world with around 10 million EVs today, about 12, to a world with 500 million EVs in the future, that'll be consequential. I don't know that we have enough minerals in the timeframes that people imagine, pretty clearly don't, but assume it happens. That would eliminate about 15% of world's oil use. 15, not 50, 15%. That's hardly an existential threat to the oil industry. In fact, if the oil industry were, I guess, being disingenuously smart, they would simply say, you go girls, build all the EVs you want. What do we care? I mean, it's not going to make any difference to their survival. In a way, some oil companies are doing the equivalent of that. The thing to keep in mind uh, also with respect to a sort of a last reality check for you is that um, the specific reason that EVs are being promoted and will be, in fact, mandated in some countries if they stay with their policies, that you have to buy an electric vehicle instead of an internal combustion engine, or they'll ban the sale of internal combustion engines. That's not because they don't like OPEC. That's not the reason. They're 
motivated because they want to reduce carbon dioxide emissions because electric vehicle obviously doesn't burn anything, obviously. So it doesn't emit any carbon dioxide. So we want to cut carbon dioxide emissions. You can just ban EVs and require people to sort of ban internal combustion engines and require people to buy EVs. Well, it's beyond obvious that electric vehicles require energy to be produced to charge the battery. And a lot of that energy is still hydrocarbons. In fact, on the world's grids, 40% still coal and about another quarter of it's burning natural gas. But in the imagined scenario in the future, you're going to make all that electricity with wind and solar. And so you won't have to burn stuff or you're, you're lucky you're Norway and you, you make it all with hydropower or you're France and you make most of it with nuclear power. But the, the real challenge is not that, it's the energy uh, and used and therefore the emissions associated with making the batteries. It takes 100 to 300 barrels of oil equivalent of energy to make batteries that can store one barrel of oil equivalent of energy. So think about that. You have to use energy equivalent to that containing 100 to 200 barrels of oil to produce batteries that can store the energy equivalent to one, one barrel of oil. All of that energy used to manufacture, this is for mining the minerals, for transporting the rocks, for dissolving the rocks, for the chemical processes to turn the uh, minerals in the rocks into refined chemical products to make the lithiated chemicals that go into the battery, to make the right form of graphite, to make the right form of nickel, to make the right forms of steel. All that takes energy, which involves the combustion of oil and gas and coal, which leads to carbon dioxide emissions. And if you calculate the all the upstream emissions associated with the embodied nature of making the batteries and their chemicals, you get very big numbers. In fact, you know, you get numbers big enough to totally wipe out all the savings that you get from driving the EVs. In some countries, it doesn't wipe all of it out. It only reduces it. In other countries, it wipes out all, all of the emissions associated with eliminating the internal combustion engine. And it varies widely depending on where the, where the, where the chemicals come from, where the mines are, what kind of battery it is, what kind of grid you're on. But it turns out it's a very complex system that doesn't eliminate carbon dioxide emissions. It just shifts them. And sometimes it shifts them to lower net emissions. And sometimes it shifts them to shifts it, the whole ecosystem to higher net emissions. I've written a lot about this. And if you're interested, you can Google it up or go to my website and you'll see some uh, specific illustrations of this and, 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 and hyperlinks and references to the primary documents that show this to be the case. This is not an anti-EV point. It's just a fact in the physics and engineering of making batteries. And what that means is a practical matter is that even if we were able to ban internal combustion engines, and we won't be able to do that, it just won't happen uh, because we can't produce enough minerals to make it happen in the timeframes that people are talking about. Then uh, we won't, in, in fact, eliminate carbon dioxide emissions. We're just going to shift them around. We might actually increase them, but we're just going to shift them somewhere else in a great expense and a great inconvenience. And that's sort of the bottom line is that it's not that EVs aren't an important, interesting option. We'll have a huge future and there's going to be millions and millions and millions of more EVs. It's that it's mythological to think that it eliminates carbon dioxide emissions. It might reduce them, it actually might increase them depending on how we produce the minerals, uh, but it will have high costs. It'll have big geopolitical impacts. It'll have big environmental impacts, subject for another day when we increase mining so much. But there'll be lots more EVs anyway, because they're an interesting option. 
And it's, you know, it's kind of ironic, by the way, that, that uh, Tesla introduced its, its uh, S sedan in 2012, which was exactly 100 years after Studebaker ended production of one of the most successful lineups of commercial electric cars. They were the big commercial EV makers back in uh, 19, 1900 through 1912. So let me end on a, on a more upbeat note, though, because I don't want you to think that I'm not an EV enthusiast. I am. In fact, uh, see, I don't know. I'm thinking I'm so impressed with what Elon Musk has been doing lately in general, uh, broadly speaking, not just politically, just fascinating guy, just as a, as a vote of solidarity. <laughs> I want to buy a, maybe buy a Tesla, um, maybe the next generation of Teslas when he comes out with them, his new Tesla sedan, which he's announced just in solidarity for his, his impressive uh, willingness to be engaged the public debate on so many important issues. And more importantly, for a space program, because he's probably going to be seen by history, historians of the future. I bet we'll see him as the, the Henry Ford of the space age, because that, that's a big revolution that's now accelerating. Topic for another episode, another day. And, and to end uh, on the, um, where I think batteries have a future that is consequential, it's not really so much in cars, but in uh, freight drones and maybe eventually air taxis. And not battery, just purely battery power, but purely battery power drones are a big deal for light packages and hybridized drones with probably fuel cells and super efficient internal combustion engines, along with batteries to allow low noise landing and takeoff. Those, those are going to revolutionize things in a big way in terms of uh, decongesting cities with, with, air, uh, with uh, freight delivery and overnight one-click delivery of packages that are light enough to be carried by freight drones. There's some very exciting uh, technology coming, and that's not, not, not imaginary. A lot of the, a lot of the uh, revolutions uh, in personal air travel are really at a stage that's not unlike we're almost like the Model T for the air taxi. We're coming close to having that. And we're past the Model T for the freight drone. That's already consequential and real. And products are emerging and services are emerging. Topics for another day, for another podcast. Because I think there are some real revolutions. And Elon Musk is certainly uh, at the epicenter of many of them. And the lithium battery is going to become a transformational tool in so many other areas other than cars, frankly. So again, topics for another day. There, there really are lots of both minor and major revolutions in our future. And, and some of them just change the nature of competition, you know, change who the winners and losers are in big niche markets and make people like Elon Musk wealthy. And some really will change the future, maybe like, as I said, practical rocket ships. So topics for future episodes, which we'll get to at another time. For now, this is Mark Mills signing off for The Last Optimist. Optimist.